Thanks, Anderson. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. We do have breaking news tonight. The January 6th committee unanimously voting to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress because he is defying his subpoena. Bannon is echoing Trump's efforts to delay. They don't want to be under oath about January 6th, apparently. Hiding, in Steve Bannon's case, under an imaginary cloak of executive privilege that provides him no cover whatsoever. The panel isn't having it. It's a shame that Mr. Bannon has put us in this position, but we won't take no for an answer. If other witnesses defy this committee, if they fail to cooperate, we will be back in this room. It appears that Mr. Bannon had substantial advanced knowledge of the plans for January 6th and likely had an important role in formulating those plans. There is no conceivably applicable privilege that could shield Mr. Bannon from testimony on all of the many other topics identified in this committee's subpoena. Cheney, very aggressive uh, on two points. First, this one about what she thinks Bannon could offer. Here's exhibit A for her. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse, you have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Now, Cheney also dropped something that I have not heard offered up yet in this situation. Listen to this. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. And this committee will get to the bottom of that. That means that Trump and Bannon, because remember, even if there were a privilege here and there isn't, Bannon can't exercise it. Trump can exercise it. Um, So Cheney's argument is that trying to get the privilege is proof that you have conversations about your knowledge that you want to hide. That's aggressive. We're going to test this assertion with a key member of the committee coming up as well as the timing for the next step. You can have a full vote now in the House. Then Pelosi would refer it, certify it to the DOJ. We understand that vote may come as soon as Thursday. Is that accurate? Assuming the DOJ takes any potential referral for a fall from Speaker Pelosi, how long would a grand jury take? How long before there would be any kind of prosecutorial action? But as for right now, the most pressing question is what these events mean from today to other Trumpers about trying to duck justice. We'll take the case to Dan Scavino's attorney tonight. He's here on the show. He's the longtime Trump loyalist, Scavino, who evaded his subpoena until Congress finally caught up with him. But first, let's bring in a key member of the committee, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, January 6th Select Committee member. It's good to have you. Welcome to primetime. Great to be with you, Chris. Um, First, the idea of voting uh, for Bannon to be held in contempt. Was it a close call for you? It was not a close call at all. After all, the mission of the January 6th Select Committee is to secure all of the facts around the January 6th insurrection and to move forward 
Clearly, Steve Bannon is somebody who has information about the planning of and the day of January 6th, and he was given an opportunity to present his side of the story to the January 6th committee, and he chose not to. And so we are moving forward as we intended to, which is that this committee means business, and nobody is above the law. So we are going to use criminal contempt um, to uh, respond to his uh, lack of willingness to uh, work with us. Uh, quick step of conjecture on Bannon, then I want to ask you about what uh, Vice Chair Cheney said. Uh, why do you think Bannon doesn't just come on and plead the fifth? One would think that if he has nothing to hide, he would show up before this committee and uh, share uh, the perspectives that he has had. If he believes he's in the right, as it sounded like he did on the day before January 6th, as he was rallying people up to um, bring the fight to Washington, he sounded like he felt very confident in his positions. And so one would have thought that he would just come to the committee and and present his perspectives if he was so in the right. The fact that he hasn't um, is really problematic, but we can't allow him or any other person that we seek to subpoena and get information out of to avoid appearing before the select committee. I know, but he could show contempt for the proceedings by showing up and just pleading the fifth. That's what I'm saying. He's taking another route, uh, and it's an interesting one, especially given the level of contempt for his position of contempt. Vice Chair Cheney said something I haven't heard before, that playing at the privilege uh, for Bannon and for Trump, Representative Cheney believes is proof that they had knowledge of what happened before January 6th. How so? How is trying to play at the privilege proof that former President Trump and or Steve Bannon knew what was going to happen? Well, playing at the privilege in this case doesn't uh, actually fully apply, but it does indicate that there is something that they're trying to hide. Look, privilege only applies to uh, elected officials' conversations with the president, and it's unclear whether or not the president can even, um, the former president, I should say, can even uh, call on executive privilege in this case. And certainly Steve Bannon cannot, as somebody who was not an elect, uh, not an official of the U.S. government at the time when he had this conversation. So if there's any conversation to protect, it must mean that the president and Bannon are trying to hide. They were, they were having conversations that were related to January 6th, and they're trying to hide behind these general uh, statements that the president, the former president is making around executive privilege so that they don't have to uh, respond to the subpoena. But we're not going to let them do that. The reality is is that nobody is above the law. If you are subpoenaed as an average citizen, you respond to that subpoena. If you don't, there are consequences. And what you saw the select committee do tonight is to move forward in the next step to ensure that uh, we move forward on criminal contempt so that there are consequences to what Steve Bannon has done. Consequences uh, are in part a function of speed of process, especially if you're trying to send a message not just to Bannon, uh, but to other people who have been subpoenaed. How quickly do you think a prosecution could happen? Is it true that there may be a vote on Thursday? Let's start there. 
I believe that there will be a vote on Thursday. At least there will be a vote by the end of this week. Um, the House will act on this and then refer it to the Department of Justice. I can't speak for the Department of Justice, but I believe this Department of Justice shares our values that nobody is above the law and that they are there to uh, evaluate the facts, the circumstances, the legislation, and the Constitution and to act accordingly. This is too important for them to sit on. Is there any indication that uh, the move on Bannon by the committee uh, has registered with Meadows or Scavino, et cetera? To be clear, of the 11 um, people that we have subpoenaed, Bannon is the only one who's taken this unusual step to defy the subpoena. The others are engaging with the select committee in different ways and have not yet uh, tripped the wire, so to speak. What does engaging to- mean? Just so we they, they are working with the committee. Are they offering are working, documents or like what? What does that mean? Documents. Some are coming in to do interviews. We are working with them to, to uh, shape the context of um, the, the information that they are giving to the select committee. So really, Bannon stands alone at this moment of defying the subpoenas. Uh, what do you make of the argument that the reason to push back against these subpoenas is that they have no legitimate legislative purpose? We have legitimate legislative purpose based on the House resolution that was passed that gives the select committee its uh, scope of work as well as the objectives that we are out to um, secure. We are trying to lay out a uh, set of facts around the run-up to and the day of January 6th so that we can prevent this from ever happening again. Our democracy is at stake in this moment when If people believe that it is okay to try to overturn a free and fair election through the use of political violence, um, then our democracy is at real risk. And so that that is a very clear mission, and it has been passed by the House of Representatives. So we do have the legislative um, cover for what it is that we're doing. Bannon's biggest problem in terms of his argument, he's making a constructive argument of accommodation. He's saying... The former president is going to, although uh, the former president's lawyer keeps calling him just president, which is, of course, a little bit of a play on who gets to uh, exercise the privilege. He's saying because Trump is going to exercise the privilege, I can't uh, I can't comply. Of course, it doesn't work that way. But more importantly, is it true? Uh, Well, we know it's true. Benny Thompson, the chair, said in his letter to Bannon's lawyer, Trump has not asserted privilege. Uh, The lawsuit is only about going after the archive and the documents. Is that true that he has not tried to protect anybody? The Bannon's alone. Well, the former president believes that things that he says in the media and in the public is somehow writ of law. And unfortunately, that's not how things work here. So he has not formally asserted privilege. And so none of them can hide behind uh, random statements uh, out out there if they're not going to follow a real process. Our country is a country of Uh, laws and rules. And if you want to do that, you have to do it in the right way. And they haven't even taken that uh, bare minimum step. And so what, what, what this all comes down to is that they are trying to deter and delay and play games with the select committee. And we're not here to play games. We are going after the information that we need to lay out this case, and we will use every tool at our disposal to do so. Congresswoman Murphy, thank you very much uh, for joining us on this important night. Good luck doing the uh, work of the people. 
All right. So none of the others um, subpoenaed in the Trump crowd uh, is putting up this kind of fight. You just heard that from the member of Congress. In fact, we learned a little bit more that they're offering documents. They're trying to create a context of a conversation with Congress. But it did take Congress more than two weeks to track down one of them, Dan Scavino. Remember that whole thing? Like, where is he? Where'd he go? What was that about? What is the legality and what is the practicality here? We're going to get fresh insight from somebody who knows exactly where he was or should and what it's all about next. All right. The Bannon case isn't just about him. Remember, there's almost a dozen other people who've been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. Lawyers for all of them are going to be watching to see how this contempt process plays out and how they advise their clients going forward. That includes my next guest, Stanley Brand, who is now representing Trump's former deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino. Counselor, welcome. Hello. So uh, one step backwards, then we'll get to the current state of play. Uh, What is your understanding of why your client uh, was hiding from the subpoena? I don't have one. I was just hired in this case uh, two days ago, so I, I don't know what went on with respect to service or process. Really? You've had no conversations? I know it would be privileged, but uh, just in terms of the universe of discussion, there was no talk about where he was all that time they were trying to find him? I, I, I wasn't involved, as I say, until, until uh, two days ago. And there's nothing magical about them having to serve process. I mean, this happens all the time. And I don't know what, what caused the delay. Well, what caused the delay was that he was in hiding. They couldn't find him. You're absolutely right. Service of process is pro forma. Ducking it is a little extraordinary. Yeah. No, not really. I mean, he he was wherever he was. And um, it's up to the marshal service to find him and serve him in an appropriate way. So I don't even know why that's an issue. It's not an issue legally unless he was uh, really extending the purpose. Well, that's what I'm here to talk about is the law. That's what I'm here for. I understand. But um, and this so is... he was he, he, he was served. He was served. He accepted service. And now that process is complete. Right. He didn't make it easy, though. Uh, and it does sound like he's there's not. There's no law. It... There's no law requirement that says he has to make it easy any more than a person in a civil suit has to or anyone else. Right. Um, the Congress has the capability to find people and serve them properly according to the rules. And, and that's what they finally did. Well, here's the constructive argument. The constructive argument is those who have nothing to hide comply. Uh, they don't uh, try to duck service and they don't try to no. um, not work with Congress. So what is your understanding in terms of uh, whether your client is going to offer up documents and testimony? Well, uh, the president has asserted privilege over the documents that were conveyed to the um, archives after the end of the administration. So he'll be guided by whatever happens there. In terms of his own uh, legal position, we're evaluating that. And as you pointed out, there are several issues here, not the least of which is privilege and not the least of which is whether this exercise by the committee, pursuant to the recently enunciated standards of the Supreme Court in the Mazars case, as a proper legislative purpose for which these uh, documents and testimony are, are necessary. What confidence do you join from Mazur uh, that would make you feel that 
the resolution creating the committee that explicitly outlines legislative purposes of understanding January 6th and trying legislatively to stop it from happening again. How does that not check the box? Well, because in the Mazars case, the committees thought they had checked the boxes on investigating money laundering and other crimes or other parts of the statute and subpoenaed the president's business records. And the court said they had not made a sufficient showing that they were entitled to those. And in fact, the case is back in court where they're trying to establish that. Right. There's a factual so discrepancy. So the, the Mazars case. It was different. It's not apples to apples. The, the um, Maz- because, the Maz- well, let, me, let me reframe it and then you can answer it. Um, it's not apples to apples. Here, what they're looking for is information directly to the subject that they're investigating. Uh, in Mazur, uh, the issue of pushback was, well, what do the, these business records have to do with what you're looking at? These are not directly related to that matter. Uh, that was the litigable issue. That's different than here, as you know. Right. But, it, but the issue still has to be litigated under the Presidential Records Act with respect to whether these records have any um, aspects of privilege that they're entitled to. And that has to be determined. Privilege is a separate issue. I'm just saying, and just for the audience, if you look up the case, it's M-A-Z-U-R. Uh, and it actually reaffirmed Congress's, uh, Congress's oversight role in these matters. Now, in terms of privilege, I, I don't see this as a very deep well Uh, We've never had a former president exercise privilege. It has been established in law uh, that this is a privilege that goes with the office for the benefit of the republic. That's not right. That's not right, Chris. You keep saying that. You need to read. Yeah, no, you need to read GSA versus Nixon, which unequivocally says that former presidents are entitled to claim the privilege. Now, whether it applies or not Ah, is a separate issue. Exactly. See, but that's, they are, enti- but they that, are you're entitled. Being, you're being they are clever. entitled to cl- claim it. You're no, being I'm not. I'm being. I'm reading the Supreme Court no, case. You're, but you're not reading it in context. Does a president have the privilege? A sitting president have the privilege of his executive immunity? Yes. In all cases, no. Which is why the primary holding of Nixon versus GSA was seizing and examining records related to a former president that are still within the control of the executive branch does not violate the separation of powers. The privilege is not for the benefit, excuse me, is not for the benefit of the president as an individual, but for the benefit of the republic, which means it has to make sense in context. He's not even a president. He's a former president. So when have you ever heard a former president assert the privilege successfully? This the privilege doesn't vanish because he's not in office any more than the attorney-client privilege vanishes when the client dies in the Vince Foster case or a member leaves Congress under the speech or debate clause. The issue is whether the functions of seeking confidential advice from advisors survives the president leaving office, and it does. Whether or not these particular documents in toto fall within the privilege is a separate issue that's the issue with that, that will get litigated in his lawsuit. I understand the argument, but I don't see any basis of precedent for it because it's not like the attorney-client privilege. Because with that, the privilege goes with the client. Even if the client dies, it's always theirs. This goes with the office. So if you are no longer president, this is, but, you don't have it. And the <laughs> proof of that is, counselor, the only time a former president has gotten the privilege protection is when a current president has offered it. 
which is why Trump's guys asked Biden and Biden said no. Well, that doesn't end the issue because there's still the question of whether any of these records convey a uh, record of the confidential conversations about matters within the office of the president. And that has not been determined yet. But it doesn't, it has been determined by the sitting president who has the right now, to assert the privilege, not a former president. You have literally no precedent that this has ever been established under law. I get your argument. You can make it, but that doesn't mean it's there. And also you have a factual problem. You haven't had an assertion of this imagined privilege by the former president on behalf of your client. Well, you've had, yes, you have. You've had two, you've had several. You've really? had the filing of the lawsuit and the, and the letter to the archivist where he's formally invoked it. But that's not about Scavino. And the attorney that's about for documents. the president. The president, if you let me finish. Go ahead. The president has directed a letter to, to, from his lawyer to the witnesses asserting privilege with respect to their communications in the Oval Office. That's as good as an assertion as you need. But I then why hasn't that been offered of to law, the committee? Or it, it's public. But the letter to the, the chairman of the public. committee said that Trump has not told them he will assert privilege over any, any individuals, that any claim he's even making is only with respect to documents and vis-a-vis the National Archives. Well, the, the, his lawyer has written to the witnesses and instructed them to respect his assertion of the privilege. But you don't find it odd that a former president would try to exert, uh, to assert a privilege and not tell the committee? Well, he's not, he's not in privity with the committee yet because they haven't subpoenaed him. But, and, and does, but that's, as no, I no, said, no, 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 Mr. He doesn't have to was be just served. He doesn't have to be subpoenaed. By your own argument, counselor, these other people would be covered by the privilege if he asserts it with respect to what they're being asked to do. It's not about privity. Privity is not an issue here. I'm not sure how formal his assertion of the privilege has to be. He doesn't even have a privilege. I don't know that there's any. Well, you say that, but we haven't really determined that in any court yet. But where have you ever heard it determined otherwise? When have you ever heard it determined that a former president has any privilege like this to assert? In the case of GSA versus Nixon, he was for one. president at the time, Counselor, and you know that. No, he wasn't. The case, go look it up, Chris. It's 1977. I know, but that was the, the chain of litigation. It's about he, what he did as president and what he could be protected. It as was then. after his records were sent and under the Presidential Records Act to the archives. It arose right. after his presidency. But it was about what he wanted to do during the presidency. And even then, he lost. Well, so is this. But he lost. So is this. But he lost, Counselor. Nixon. He lost on some. No, no. He brought the claims and the court found that the statute provided a mechanism for him to challenge production of those records. And that case was was litigated. And then he he gave up. They got the records, and that's why in the holding, the court went out of its way to say this privilege is not about protecting you as an individual. It's about protecting what would he's matter to the He's not asserting it as an individual. He's not, asser- he wasn't asser- he's not asserting it as an individual. 
He's asserting it as a function of his office to communicate with people who work for him. But that's why it would be up to Biden as an extension of the office to give the accommodation to Trump. Otherwise, Trump would have never asked him. Right. Why did Trump ask Biden? Because he likes him? Because he wants his good counsel? Because no, the statute requires him to ask. That's right. The statute provides a mechanism for him to ask the former president, which had President Biden determined to assert it, would have strengthened the claim. But it doesn't eliminate it. Well, that's your argument. And we'll see how it plays out. And I appreciate you spelling it out for us here. Just one last quick question. Does Scavino want to cooperate? Does he, doesn't, he believe, doesn't he believe he's operating with high ground here and that he has nothing to hide? Well, I haven't, I haven't discussed with him yet all the legal issues and questions that he may have with respect to this. We haven't engaged with the committee and we may do that. All right. I, look, I appreciate you doing this. Not the easiest conversation to have. Uh, I misspelled Mazers. It's M-A-Z-A-R-S. If you want to look up the case and see what's going on. Not you, Stan. I know you know it. Um, the people at home. Uh, just to Google it and you'll see it's all laid out. Stan Brand, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on the show. I'll take silence as acceptance. The current president is back trying to fuse his party together around his stalled economic agenda to hammer out a deal. Biden has worries about going abroad and showing America's face to the world with nothing in hand. We're going to ask one of the progressives who met with Biden today what was said, what message was conveyed, and what is the chance of getting something done before the G20 or the big climate summit thereafter. Next. The president is open to dropping some of the key parts of the Build Back Better plan. Like what? Tuition-free community college and adding limits to the child tax credit and elderly care. Now, these are all very popular things, but they don't have the consensus within his own party. So another day of meetings, lunches, phone calls, just among Democrats. I know this looks like how Washington should work if you had two parties involved. But let's talk to a progressive who was in today's meetings, Wisconsin Representative Mark Pocan. Uh, Congressman, thank you. Uh, Chris, thanks for having me. So um, what do I have right? What do I have wrong? What was the president's posture today? Uh, You know, I think he's anxious to get this done. Um, Not frustrated, but anxious is the right word because this is his agenda. He's extremely well-versed in it. He wrote it. Uh, He's uh, got every detail uh, in his head on this. And, you know, most of the final negotiation is really with a couple people in the Senate, but there are hundreds of Democrats in the House and 48 in the Senate who are uh, ready to go on this as soon as we can. And I think once we get the final few to um, join us, uh, we're going to have two really big bills they're going to deliver for the American people. Well, look, the good news is Whatever you pass, if the number is even a fraction of what was originally suggested and the majority of boxes are checked, it'll be spending like we haven't seen on meaningful programs based on polls of how people feel about it since the New Deal. Um, The problem is you guys keep fighting off success uh, by figuring out what's going to be in the bill. The balancing is it's all but two of you. 
as you suggested. How do you quell the frustration of people like you and other progressives who are like, don't talk to us, Mr. President. Love you. Respect you. Go talk to cinema and mansion because they're killing us. Well, first, the president's doing just that uh, while he's meeting with us. And I think we're having almost what I'd call part celebratory, part strategy sessions on what this bill is going to get done. Because as you said, Chris, I mean, this is going to be as big as the New Deal, bigger than the New Deal. When we get this done, it's going to improve people's lives. 40 million Americans will continue to see a a tax cut through the child tax credit. Uh, You're going to see reduced costs for Americans through lower cost prescription uh, drugs, through being able to get their child care at no more than 7% of their income, uh, through expansion of Medicare, so many other things that the average person is gonna actually benefit from. Finally, from Washington, it's gonna create millions of jobs, many tackling climate change. And the best part is it's paid for, right? That's the part that everyone gets lost. They're saying, what's the final number gonna be? The final number is actually zero as far as cost to the average person. And the numbers never help you anyway. I know it works. I know it worked well in-house, inside Washington. It was a big price tag. It's a big wow. But as you you know how people, I mean, you know from back home, people get sticker shock. So I think the more you guys sell the programs uh, and not the price tag, the better for you. One last last quick question, um, Congressman Pocan, and I appreciate you being here. Uh, Do you think you can get a framework done, whatever that means, uh, before he goes, Biden goes, the president goes to the G20, such that you can have a vote on the infrastructure bill and send him to face the rest of the uh, G20 with something in his pocket? I think the vast majority of us want to get this done as soon as possible. Uh, I think the next couple of days are going to be crucial with a few of those folks over in the Senate that we just talked about. But the president is working extremely hard. He and his administration are very committed to this. And in Congress, our leadership and, and members and our, our progressive caucus you know, we're ready to celebrate this, what we've delivered for the American people. Uh, and we want to do it as soon as we possibly can. So we're hoping that, you know, the few holdouts that are still out there, the rest of us are rowing together. We just need them to pick out what kind of wood they want their ore made out of. And we'll all be together. <laughs> That's a good line. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you very much. Good luck doing the work of the people. Thank you. All right. Another right wing anti-vaxxer just announced he has COVID. I don't know if he really did, but Radio host Tennis Prager is bragging that he got it on purpose so that he could show it's no big deal. No news. If uh... Why would someone do this? And why would someone want to send that kind of message? You know, supposedly uh, Prager is a statistics guy. You haven't seen how many dead there are. Why would you want to do anything to create more? Let's talk to somebody with some influence in true conservative circles. How's this playing? Next. The latest right-winger downplaying COVID is really trying to make a name for himself. It is infinitely preferable to have natural immunity than vaccine immunity. I, so, uh engaged with strangers, constantly hugging them, taking photos with them, knowing that I was making myself very susceptible to getting COVID, which is indeed, as bizarre as it sounded, what I wanted. 
in the hope that I would achieve natural immunity and be taken care of by therapeutics. Now, look, what he really wanted is what I'm giving him right now, which is attention. The 73-year-old conservative radio show host, Dennis Prager, he says that that's what he did to intentionally get it. He says he tested positive for COVID last week. At no point, uh, he says, was he in danger of being hospitalized. That's the way the overwhelming majority of cases go. But why take the risk? Why, why do that? What message do you want to send to people? Get sick, it's great. Over the past three months, at least five right-wing radio show hosts who, like him, discourage listeners from getting the vaccine, have died of COVID. This has never been about, of course, if you could have natural immunity, that would be great. And by the way, uh, often the task of a vaccine is to help your body create that kind of immunity. But when you don't have it, what are you supposed to do? Let's bring in conservative insider Mike Broomhead, host of the Mike Broomhead Show on KTAR in Arizona. Now, look, why am I giving him the attention? Uh, Because I want to expose this as something that is not a good thing to do and really dangerous, Mike. I mean, even if he's right that he, like, was around, you know, like, licking poles or whatever he had to do to get sick here, you know, hugging and kissing and coughing and whatever he was doing, um, why? I I don't know the answer to why, you know, 73 years old, statistically, Arizona is no different than Wisconsin or any other state where um, it's older people over the age of 65 that are the most in danger of serious illness or death. So I don't know the answer to that. He did say he's being uh, treated with monoclonal uh, antibodies, ivermectin, um, maybe hydroxychloroquine. Maybe the point was to show that those medications work. I don't know the answer to why. By the way, they wouldn't even, you know show it. Ivermectin, there's been absolutely no proof that it can do it. We know that hydroxychloroquine is about dealing with any kind of pneumonia condition, which is in a you know, later stage of COVID. But just in terms of the politics, you're Mike, and I appreciate you coming on, brother, by the way. Um, why is this saleable in conservative circles that the vaccine is a joke and you don't need it and everything's being overhyped? I would I would say what I would say to you is I disagree that it's just conservatives. You know, Black Lives Matter came out and said that they're not in favor of vaccine mandates either. Um, We're looking at a lot of people that are balking at getting a vaccine. So I don't know that this is political. I do understand the concern about somebody that's 73 years old, I think, is what Mr. Prager is. And I certainly can't second guess him. He's a brilliant man. The guy's a brilliant guy. I don't know why he's doing it. This is not a brilliant move, Mike. It may not be. But again, I don't think that this is conservative versus liberal. I don't think it's Republican versus Democrat. I mean, Black Lives Matter has come out and said yeah, that they're but, not in look, favor of vaccines. Black Lives Matter, you know, I don't know. I haven't been researching them. But I mean, look, it's not a coincidence that you've had these conservative radio hosts go down and that you've had all of these elected representatives on the right making this case. I mean, you didn't see Black Lives Matter or anyone on the liberal circles going after Colin Powell right after he died saying this is proof that the vaccine doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, I, just uh, a side note, I know that's not the topic. Let me say this about uh, about General Powell. He served his country honorably under multiple presidents, um, including President Obama. He just was one of those guys that he politics be damned. If uh, if my country needs me, I'll serve my country. And he was suffering from a disorder that myeloma that it, that compromises your immune system. So I don't think there's an argument there about the vaccine because his immune system was compromised at 84 years old. 
it's more proof that someone that's older is more susceptible to serious illness or death. 100%. Look, neither of us are doctors. Uh, but I believe the value um, to having you on with the audience is to remind people that there are real conservatives out there that are dealing with science and dealing with fact. And you may have different opinions about what should happen in our government and our society, uh, but you're coming from a place of head and heart. Uh, and I respect that. And I respect you. I appreciate you. And I appreciate being on as always. And again, I'm fully vaccinated. I got fully vaccinated as soon as I could. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I am someone that's against mandates. Understood. And look, they're, they're controversial in society right now. The problem is, what do you do when your society yep. won't take it? What are you left with? We'll keep talking. Mike Broomhead, be well. You too, sir. All right, we'll be right back. Race was a theme on day two of the jury selection in the Ahmad Arbery case. Remember, these three white men have been accused of chasing down and killing Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was out for a jog in their neighborhood. While attorneys for at least two of the accused killers have denied race was a factor, they were keen to question would-be jurors on that topic for views on the Confederate flag and on Black Lives Matter. Let's bring in top legal mind Joey Jackson. Um, so we're looking at these questions. Uh, what stood out to you? I mean, everything stands out to me with respect to what people's feelings are, their beliefs are, what they believe about Black Lives Matter, what they believe about Confederate flags, what they believe about race relations in the country. And so you want to be able to vet jurors. And Chris, you know, I'm one that believes when you select a jury, I don't believe in stereotypes. There are so many stereotypes we lawyers have with respect to who should be impaneled. I'm one that believes that you ask jurors about what their views of life are. You get a sense for their fairness, their sense of justice, their families, them as individuals, what they like, what they don't like. And you select someone that you think is appropriate and could evaluate a case based on the merits and based on nothing else. What do you think the chances that you can do that in this case? You know, I think the chances are very good. Our system depends upon that. Let's remember and remind everyone, Chris, that a thousand members of the public have been called to jury duty for this case, right? That's 10 times more than the average case. And why do you do that? Because you know people have opinions. You know people have thought about this, have discussed it, have formulated some pretty significant thoughts. But the hope is that out of those 1,000 people that you don't get, not people who've never heard about it or who even don't have an opinion, but people who can leave that aside and can look at the facts, look at the evidence, and make a determination based upon that and not anything that they heard in the press at some prior time. So yes, it's a challenge, to be clear. We'd be naive to state that it wasn't, but it certainly can be done. Our system depends upon it, and we have a pretty good system at that. Help the audience get up to speed on the defense relying in part on this now defunct Civil War era law. Um, What is the law, and why would they do this? So what happens is, is that the defense is going to be relying upon self-defense. In order to do that, they're going to predicate that defense upon we were making a citizen's arrest. Well, why were you? Because the law would provide for if you see that a crime was committed in your presence, that crime happened to be a felony, what it would allow you to do is to otherwise detain someone for purposes of them violating the law. In the event that you have doing so, what's that? What's the civil war aspect? Well, the Civil War aspect is that's when the law was formulated. That's when the law came about. It was a citizen's arrest law that was that was really 
uh, you know, of long standing, and that's the aspect of it. And it was not thought of highly, and that's why it has since been repealed because it could lead to things like this, this these types of behavior where you have someone dead and they did not need to be. And so they'll be relying upon that, even though the law has since been repealed. They'll be arguing that indeed a crime was committed, that crime being trespass. They believed that he was committing that crime, chased him down as a result of that, and were acting lawfully and had to defend themselves. That's what the defense will be. I'm not suggesting that that defense will be successful under the facts and circumstances of this case. They may not even let it in. Joey Jackson, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Always. Thanks, Chris. Let's take a break and then the handoff. All right. Thank you for watching. It is now time for Don Lemon tonight with its big star, D. Lemon. Okay. The expectation of this committee is that all witnesses will cooperate with our investigation. Witnesses who have been subpoenaed have a legal obligation to do so. And it goes on to say, our goal is simple. We want Mr. Bannon to answer our questions. We want him to turn over whatever records he possesses that are relevant to the select committee's investigation. The issue in front of us today is our ability to do our job. Finally, there seems to be some urgency in Washington regarding the subversion of uh, justice. People are trying to flout the law and subpoenas. And we need that urgency when it comes to getting something done, a deal on infrastructure, and especially voting rights. Where's the lie? Am I wrong? Well, I I agree with that. I don't know where the January 6th committee gets you in terms of what I believe uh, the Hill was to die on for Democrats, which is uh, putting voting rights into a place that they're safe uh, based on what's happening across the country right now. Uh, But it's up to them what they decided to do. They're trying to get the spending bill and infrastructure bill done. We'll see how it takes them. But the part of that document that matters most is the resolution creating the committee, which says you want to find the facts and then you want to find ways to make this not happen again. Resolution 503. And the reason for that is you can't argue effectively that they don't have a legislative purpose Mm -hmm. in asking for these documents and to hear about these conversations. So doing that to beat the subpoena overbroad, there's no legitimate legislative purpose. I don't see how that wins. The idea of privilege for Bannon, I don't, first of all, hasn't been asserted. I had one of the lawyers on tonight arguing it, not a cogent case. Um, But the bigger question is, Don, you got nothing to hide. Why not come and present to the committee, or at least, if you want to show contempt for the committee, show up and plead the fifth. Well, because you want to, you know, um, it used to be, Republicans would say, no man is above the law. No Mm. one is above the law. We should all be treated equally, law and order, until this fella, this, you know, sort of shady real estate kind of person came along and then changed all of that, the narrative for the Republican Party, and showed that, well, some people are above the law and that they were actually going to stand and are standing behind um, the, the right, they believe, for people to be above the law. And Steve Bannon is not. The former president is not or should not be. But we haven't really seen that Republican stand by that whole law and order, um, you know, mantra or motto that they well, you, you haven't know, seen the say. Republicans stand up for anything. You had one guy <laughs> from Nebraska True that. in a district that Biden won said that Trump talking about Colin Powell uh, was graceless, uh, which is about the most generous assessment that you can give uh, about what he said, disparaging that man right after he can died. Can you believe that? 
Of course, I believe you can. It. But what, just, I, what, what should be disgusting to people is not Trump. That's what he is. It's that other people are okay with it with their silence in a party that used to be about character counting. Well, that's what, well, Chris, I'm just going to let folks in on a little, not even a secret, but just behind the scenes. We talked about this on our taping of the handoff uh, this afternoon about how it is, it's mostly the people who are making excuses and are just not saying anything, that that's the problem. That's the issue when it comes to- All it to, takes for evil to succeed. Is for good men to do nothing or say nothing, which is what's happening now. But I'm not sure that people are such good men and women- when they're standing by and our democracy is being threatened and r- people are running roughshod over the republic the rule and over is laws and institutions. Don Lemon is a good man because he is what he does. Yeah. Chris Cuomo is a flawed man because he is what he does. Uh, we are all what we do. And that's how the members of Congress are going to be measured. And I'm not one to pump the handoff podcast the way Don is. But I will tell you something. If you listen to the new version of the podcast. You will learn something. Do not. About one of us. Oh, I'm not going to. Okay. But you will learn something about one of us that you will appreciate more than I can adequately express. Something that everybody gets wrong about me. But it is so right. You will be so (laughs) happy that you listen to this episode of The Hand. I've never pumped the handoff before. I'm telling you. This is worth it. All right. Thank you, Carmen. No, don't play. (laughs) Don't play, D-Lemon. I love you. I love you. I'll see you later. I got to get to the breaking news. I'll see you. See you later. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.